On this week's episode, we welcome Dr. Hassan A. Teta. Platform, Dr. Hassan Teta, best-selling author of The Art of Human Care with Artificial Intelligence. Dr. Teta, how will artificial intelligence make physicians smarter? That's an excellent question. It'll help us give information to our patients in a more efficient and a more available way. What I mean by that? I'll tell you a little story. When I started to do my work in artificial intelligence, I have a background as a cardiac surgeon. We take data, we take technology, we synthesize that to help our patients. I was presented with a case one time. It was a gentleman who was uh, not old, in his mid-40s. He had a family history of heart disease, perfect, perfect condition in terms of his health, his fitness, and he had chest pain. And I thought to myself, in this vast body of information that we have, all of the research over all these decades, there probably is something that this gentleman has that has probably been described in the literature. Voluminous amounts of research is published every day. And we just, as physicians, can't synthesize all of that. But if you have an opportunity and a way to synthesize that information to get insight so that you can treat your patients better, that is one of the ways that it can make us smarter and make us more efficient, make us better equipped to take care of our patients. Artificial intelligence should be looked at, Armstrong, as a tool to help the providers do their work better. And that's where, that's, that's where it is. But at what price to the patient? At what price to the patient? Yes. Well, that's a good question. I think the context of that question needs to be sort of looked at over the expanse of history and where technology has been applied to help patients. All technology, when it's introduced into patient care, has to be done in a very deliberate, very responsible, and a very ethical way. The stethoscope, for example. When it was first introduced, many people thought it was a, a heretic item. <laughs> but it turns out that over time, and after research and after validation, we found that it actually helped us to diagnose heart conditions better and assess a patient's heart function. Before the stethoscope, people used to just put the air to the chest and listen. Not very effective, not as good as the stethoscope. That's just one example. But if you think about how artificial intelligence has been applied now, we're helping patients by enhancing diagnostics. Artificial intelligence is being used to better diagnose radiologic films, pathologic slides. This can help patients have detection of cancers and ailments and pathology faster and sooner so they get the care that they need and deserve. So you trust AI with this, in the long term, with this art of human medicine? I think it is an adjunct and a tool to be used in addition to all of the very central themes that have always underpinned good and effective healthcare. Listening to the patient, caring for the patient, being responsible about the kind of care that you're gonna to deliver to the patient, personalizing the care, and working in a partnership with the patient to deliver the best treatment for that patient at the right time for when the patient needs it. Billy Carson, 
For those yes, sir. that have this wonderment about artificial intelligence, you know, sometimes people fake that they understand what it means and what it is, and so they don't embarrass themselves. They pretend they know exactly what the conversation is about. Why don't you break down for us and our audience exactly what artificial intelligence is today, what it was yesterday, and what it means for our future? Yes, definitely. Artificial intelligence has been developed over the last 30 years. It's not something that's to totally brand new. There's been various forms of it from decades ago. In the past, it was extremely rudimentary, uh, just basically able to answer very, very simple questions. And even at that time, the human brain was still uh, computational, uh, much more powerful. Now, fast forward to uh, you know the current era where we are right now, you find that uh, it has grown in magnitudes. And what they did with this AI when they began to develop at this higher level, they began to utilize it on the general population without them knowing about it, to be quite honest with you, in order to gather data and to train the AI. So the AI has been getting trained. A lot of these apps and programs and software programs that you've been accessing and utilizing over the last five to eight years have actually had very, very small print that you're allowing this AI technology or your data to be sent to this AI technology so that it can learn. So it's been learning off of the human populace for uh, close to a decade now. And so what AI is, it's a culmination of um, this quantum computing type of technology that allows it to be able to process, access database, interpolate information, extract data, and also come, with own, come up with its own hypothesis without any human interaction. And it can actually even make decisions, it can kick out answers. So AI, is that's where it is right now, but it still has a lot of errors right now. There's still a lot of things they're working on. Or as a matter of fact, I did a podcast the other day where I was asking live on the, on my video, you know, AI some questions and it couldn't answer those particular questions. So there's a lot more learning and growing for it to do. In the future though, you're looking, you know, far in the future, maybe another 10 years, you're talking about this thing literally being uh, imbued in every single electronic device that we have, smart homes, TVs, whatever our mobile apparatus will look like at the time, cars and everything else, will all, you know, even airplanes will all be driven off of this AI technology. The question is we have to set up parameters to keep control over it and not let it control us. Now you said something um, that's insightful, uh, that you asked AI questions not only could they not answer, but they got the answers wrong. I just read where when AI first started out, um, the math questions that were programmed to be answered, they could answer almost 80 to 90% of those questions. As of recent, within the last week, it has only been able to answer 20% of those questions to get those answers right. What does that tell you? That, uh, it's learning the wrong information from us. <laughs> it's starting to go backwards so to speak. And so I saw that same article, as a matter of fact. Um, I had asked you the simple question about the word the matrix in the Bible. How many times did the word matrix appear in the Bible? And it said the matrix is not in the Bible whatsoever, but it appears in the Bible in five different verses. So clearly it didn't have access to that data or couldn't figure it out or didn't know. But again, mathematically, so what's happening is here, we see that it, it had these, this huge surge up front but now so many people are utilizing it, it could be that it's, it could be getting confused. I mean, it is operating on a certain level of consciousness, not the same as a human being, 
but there is a certain level of conscious intent behind it. And it could be also another option is that the people that are programming the AI have tuned it back a little bit. For whatever reason, we have no idea what that agenda is, but it could be that they've kind of uh, are playing and tinkering with the software in real time, and we're seeing the effect of that during this process of it learning how to grow and answer and, uh, and, and overcome issues and problems that it's having, glitches and so forth. So it's this process of, could it be a lot of the input going in that's wrong uh, and it's learning from it, or uh, that they're tinkering? It could be a combination of both. You know, Tiffany, you know, I mean, you are a serial entrepreneur. You've raised almost a billion dollars early on in your life when you were 20, almost $670 million. You've created opportunities and jobs all over the world. One of the concerns I hear about AI is in the world of the workforce and employment. What jobs will AI replace? Well, AI has already started replacing jobs because as Billy Carson said, it has been here. All of a sudden, it is always, it's, all of a sudden, it has made himself known, I am here and I'm here to stay and I may be coming after your place of employment. Talk about AI and the workforce. Yeah, so um, that's a fantastic question. And I think, one, I would like to address people's general fear of AI, right? So before we even get to the workforce, there's this general fear of artificial intelligence. And I think partly because it's named wrong, it's more human-derived intelligence versus artificial intelligence. So there are humans behind all this. Uh, Billy touched upon it with uh, the human trainers. Um, but if you look at technology that we are comfortable with, like our smartphones, how often do you up have to update your smartphones, right? It's much less complex than the AI and large language models that we're talking about. And still, uh, the Apple operating system since it was released in 2006, has had like 16 updates. We're on iOS 16. And iOS 16 was released last September, and we're at 16.6. So that's how often these, um, you know, the technology needs to be updated. And so first off, I want to say, don't be afraid of AI. AI is not death of humanity. You need to, you know, the software needs to be babysitted. The models need to be trained. Uh, the servers, the electricity, all of that. We are a long way away from uh, death of humanity with AI, if that would ever be the case. I think that's more fantasy. With regards to the future and, and workforce and replacement. And, and so I've spent a lot of time really looking at artificial intelligence for good and the impact that can have in the world and the workforce. Um, I think that we're already seeing a lot of the disruption in the workforce and the sort of jobs that it's replacing um, are the sort of jobs that are more repetitive, um, that you know, very data-oriented um, and uh, don't require a lot of creativity. So one of the good, like, so for example, you'll see uh, things around, um, uh, say like in the finance uh, industry, a lot of compliance stuff is um, handled by artificial intelligence now. So the know your customer, uh, rules that exist to make sure that there's uh, your customers aren't money launderers, for example. You'll, you'll see a lot of that where it's data-driven, 
um, predictive modeling to sort of say this is the profile of a money launderer, this person is behaving like that, flag it. Um, but a lot of the, the jobs around creativity, so for example, I'm in the innovation space, uh, jobs where you need new ideas, where you need to collaborate and problem solve. Um, things like, uh, um, for example, in medicine, when you're doing the diagnostic, right, and, and Dr. Teta can speak to this better, when you're doing the diagnostic and having the initial results presented, AI can be great for that. But you don't want those results to go directly to the patient. You need people in the middle, the, the, um, the technicians, the doctors, to put their creativity and their, uh, the, the art, so to speak, in it, where they're also looking at making intuitive connections and drawing upon their experience that could be anchored more in the real world with real human beings, whereas AI is deriving this sort of mathematical human <laughs> that might not actually exist in the real world. Um, I think human creativity will always surpass uh, machine uh, creativity or intelligence dealing with uh, technology a lot. We don't realize how much humans are involved in every step of the way of technology. We're sort of seeing this a bit with Twitter, right, where you've gone from 7,000 to 2,000 employees, and I think they're even cutting more employees. And if you've used Twitter along the way, you also notice that there's a lot more outages. The, the, the uh, tech will, has imploded a few times already, whereas when you had all of those humans watching out for it, that type of stuff happened, but you didn't notice it before. So um, I think what we'll find with artificial intelligence is that hopefully there'll be more collaborative intelligence involved where uh, artificial intelligence is bringing out the best of humans. With that said, for the sort of roles that are repetitive and predictive like compliance, uh, where people will lose their jobs, I think we have to be very proactive in retraining the workforce as well as paying people to go back to school, et cetera. I, I feel we've waited too long already anyway because we're up against it now, With especially when ChatGPT was released in, in uh, November 30th of last year. Um, but it's not too late. It's actually uh, something where we can use AI to help train the, uh, the future workforce, and we can use each other. And I'll give you one little example with that. I'd written a piece called um, The Education of You and Me about seven years ago around AI, where you could leverage, uh, say for example, me, I'd go into the system, fill out a form and say, I live here, I have experience in AI and tech and da 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 and blah, blah, blah. I'm also interested in uh, human psychology, et cetera, et cetera. And the AI could match citizens with each other, and maybe you meet up at a library. Hmm. And I teach someone about uh, AI, and that person might teach me about human psychology. So that instead of making everything about going back to school or this hierarchical structure of school, it's peer-to-peer, -peer, almost like an Uber or a Lyft, where we're sharing our intelligence and knowledge with each other. 
Um, and I feel if we did that, it wouldn't be as daunting to people that uh, they're seeing, who are seeing their jobs uh, disappear because of AI. And also it won't be as daunting for them to start, like that could be the initial few steps. And then after they've been speaking to their neighbor, you know, or fellow citizens about it, they might then decide, oh, let me go into a training program. So, you know, Dr. Hassan, I read a quote from you, uh, the importance of health and wellness. Scientists get to do what they do and do it well and over a long term to prepare the time because of health. Lawyers, caregivers, any sect of society gets to do what they do over a long period of time because they take care of their health. And when, you, when I was listening to Billy and listening to Tiffany, I thought about how you sort of develop and deploy this AI ethically. Because we've already reading reports where AI is overriding, even when it's programmed. I mean, you could be in the hospital and you say, let's administer this. this is, AI can say no. They can over. How do you control this concern about AI? And once you override, you have to figure out how to go back and level that off before damage or somebody may end up dying or severely harmed. How do you manage that? Yeah, I'm sorry. That's a great question. I think uh, you know to perhaps uh, accentuate and underscore some of the things that Billy and Tiffany have already spoke about. You know, it is, uh, Billy, I think, mentioned it well in, in terms of how is AI defined. It's defined differently from, by so many people. Each one of us now has a different definition, so to speak, of what AI is. To answer your question specifically about how it's being implemented in the hospital and what harm it could cause or not cause is to understand fundamentally that right now that is not necessarily the case in the hospital. You know, there is not a omniscient force that's being implemented and applied in patient care. There are definitely tools being developed that are helping us in both the diagnostic and in the therapeutics for healthcare and how we take care of patients. But there is not a computer that's out there just running rogue in the hospitals that, that's doing things to patients. I think that needs to be sort of level set and clear. But what I would like to do is give you two examples, one on a microscopic and sort of personal way and so on the macroscopic and a population health way of showing you how effective AI has been in, in helping individuals. And, and I've published about this in, in, uh, with my colleagues. So on a microscopic level, uh, because of the digitization of pathology slides, because of the massive computing power that we now have, and because of the data that we've been fortunate enough to gather over all this time, we're able to train models and use computer vision and an interface to help us diagnose certain cancers. And we've actually helped to bring this technology, this very valuable tool, to the bedside. So imagine looking into a microscope and having an interface that allows a circle to be driven or uh, drawn around a tissue that looks suspect. Now the pathologist can hone in on that and that can now be the basis of an early diagnosis that now that information can be used to help treat the patient more effectively and earlier. That's and, and, that's on and, and sort of reduce being misdiagnosed. 
Correct. And, yeah. and yeah. increase the efficiency of that pathologist because now the pathologist can actually look at more slides mm -hmm. over time and actually have the augmenting and the help of this tool. So that's one example on the microscopic level, right? And, and for the personalized. But now take it macroscopic. During the, during the pandemic, we learned a lot. Uh, telehead, telemedicine, telehealth has exploded, obviously, and that's here to stay. That's a good thing. There are components of that that are going to be augmented and enhanced with AI. But I want to speak specifically about another platform that, with the tools of AI, our colleagues helped. And we published about this as well. So during the pandemic, you can remember, in the very early days of the pandemic, there was a lot of information that we did not know. How could we track where COVID was going to be presenting itself in populations? There wasn't an ICD-9 or ICD-10 code for that. That wasn't even in existence. But we did know patients were coming to the ER with flu-like symptoms. We extrapolated claims data to be able to build a model so that we can, in the early, early stages, this is early 2020, figure out that there were certain places down to the zip code level where there were outbreaks of populations that were coming into the hospital with what appeared to be flu-like symptoms that were likely COVID. Now, with that information, as we started to develop and mature the models, we were able to say, hey, we can now deploy resources to certain zip codes, to certain places. We could start to have this information help us with getting the essential care and needs and, and the help that these patients need down to a very specific area. That would not have been possible had it not been for the, the process of, of really doing a very a robust data analysis on a disparate amount of information. Now, you think about how you can take that to the next stage. You can couple that with different factors, social determinants of health. This can now start to help us as care providers, as public health officers, start to understand and appreciate how we can better take care of our populations. So I think Tiffany has uh, you know, underscored something. I think there is, uh, and, and she and I had had a had an opportunity to to be on another panel and and, and have a, a platform where we are able to field questions. And one of the things I ask before patients, before folks ask questions, is, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist, or are you undecided about AI? And the optimists, you know, were very excited, exuberant about it. The pessimists, very you know, anxious, understandably, and then there were a lot of people that were quite frankly indifferent because I think the understanding of what's happening is still limited. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.